I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, y'all. Brittany here to tell you a bit about today's sponsor of Undistracted MailChimp. Running a small business or startup is not easy, especially when you're trying to get the word out about your products in today's hectic digital world. It is packed out there, but thankfully MailChimp wants you to succeed. And with their smart marketing platform, you can focus on that. The platform can help you turn insights into results, scale your marketing, and let your brand shine thanks to an AI-powered creative assistant. Later in the episode, you'll hear from a small business owner who will give their best tips and tricks for running a business. In the meantime, you can learn more by visiting MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. That's MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. Hey y'all, it's Brittany. It's been just over a month since Russia began its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th. And like all of you, I've been watching in horror as cities have been ransacked and families have been displaced, as lives have been stolen, as NICU babies had to shelter in hospital basements. So many of us have contributed to relief efforts or shared news stories from the region and not but, and in the days and weeks since, we have been hearing many raise their voices about the clear inequities between the response of the Ukrainian refugee crisis and, well, so many of the other refugee crises that have come before and many that are still happening. The viral humanitarian responses for Ukraine are absolutely the right thing to do. And it is also the right thing to do for Syria and for Yemen. The media coverage of the Ukrainian crisis is wall-to-wall, while stories about what many classify as genocide in the Tigray region of Ethiopia is hardly ever seen. The truth is this, when harm is done to people of color and the refugees are coming from nations across the global South, the response is racist, inadequate, and ultimately deeply harmful. And I share those complaints, as does our entire team. So we had a choice to make. We could amplify those very legitimate frustrations, especially about the lack of media coverage for displaced people worldwide. Or we could remember we are the media and just do it ourselves. So hopefully this episode brings us into the lives of all displaced people. And from Ukraine to Honduras to Syria, deepens our value of one another's humanity across the board. We are undistracted. On the show today, I'll be talking to Mazun Al-Malehan, UNICEF's youngest Goodwill Ambassador, about the world's refugee crisis. 
when the war happens, we see who pays the price, children and women who really have nothing to do with war. That's coming up, but first, it's the news. So like I said, this week we are going deep into what it means to be a refugee and how we can stand in solidarity with displaced people worldwide. So let's start here. As of this week, nearly 4 million Ukrainians have fled their homeland, with more than 6 million people displaced inside the country. They have joined a particularly afflicted global community. There are 84 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. This is Serena Parekh professor of philosophy at Northeastern University and author of the book No Refuge, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis. Alongside the terrifying abuses they have faced, Professor Parekh says Ukrainians are now being aided in at least one systemic way. The really amazing thing that's happened in Europe is the Temporary Protection Directive. And what that means is that as soon as somebody crosses Ukraine into Poland, they are immediately given authorization to travel across Europe, to work in any country in the European Union, and they're given a bunch of help along the way, access to education, access to health care, etc., while they're waiting. That level of support for refugees is humane and necessary, but it isn't usually what happens. In the early 2010s, Syrians, Afghans, and Iraqis fleeing violence in their homeland were initially tolerated or even welcomed in some European nations. But Professor Parekh says that by 2015, many countries were finding ways to skirt international law to avoid having to host asylum seekers at all, making deals with nations like Turkey to house people, or even funding the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept migrants in the Mediterranean Sea. And the U.S. has been very little help. It's been accepting drastically fewer refugees ever since September 11th, and more recently has adopted policies like Remain in Mexico for asylum seekers coming through South and Central America and parts of the Caribbean. It's a stark contrast to the displays of generosity that have greeted Ukrainians at Polish, Hungarian, and Romanian borders. We should be receiving all children you know, with teddy bears and chocolate bars, not batons and pepper spray. And not just, of course, refugees who are quote-unquote like us, but all refugees who ask for help. Professor Parekh says the difference in treatment is in some ways complicated and in other ways, it's really quite simple. I think it is hard to ignore race, especially when we think about why it was that they were so determined to keep out refugees from other places. So it's not merely that they're treating Ukrainian refugees a little better than they treated other refugees. But it is a complex question, and I, and I don't want to reduce it to, to racism. There's many really understandable reasons why people sympathize, both with people they see as like themselves, but also as people they have connections to. They know many Ukrainians, and they really see themselves in Ukrainians' shoes. They think, you know, that could be us. If they don't succeed, you know, we could be the next country Russia attacks. So they want to do everything they possibly can to support Ukrainians. So you can really understand why it is that there's so much sympathy. But the problem is that human rights and refugee rights are not supposed to be based on sympathy. They're supposed to be based on being human. And it's not just a matter of theoretical rights. It's a matter of international law 
which guarantees refugees' rights, according to Caitlin Chandler, a freelance journalist covering migration and security. You cannot send someone back to a country where they will face violence or persecution. However, how countries have interpreted these laws depends often on politics. Denmark, for instance, is sending Syrians back to Syria, even though it's not safe to return there. And that's something that I think is not just happening in the EU, but across wealthy countries globally. So you also had Australia, who was arresting refugees, trying to reach Australia and sending them to Papua New Guinea, where they were in detention centers. The U.S. has also tried to stop people from crossing the border from Mexico and would like them to stay on the other side. And this is a big shift in global asylum policy because the law says that you should be able to cross a border and then seek asylum. Chandler also makes an interesting point. Wealthier nations might be turning away refugees now, but we could be refugees in the future. I think we're moving towards a future in which climate change is going to cause mass upheaval, mass migration, including within the U.S. It's also going to be that Americans will be moving and migrating. So it's absolutely in our best interest to think about how can we make that more humane now? How can we work towards changing these policies today? Here's where I want to leave us on this issue. Migration isn't new. And we have always known how we are supposed to treat migrants. Islamic law states that individuals have the right both to seek and be granted asylum in any Muslim state. Leviticus of the Christian Bible and the Jewish Torah instructs that when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him or her or them as yourself. Coming up, I'll be talking to Mazun El-Malehan about fleeing Syria as a child and how the world can be more just in its treatment of refugees right after this short break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And now you'll hear from a featured entrepreneur in the Undistracted Spotlight, brought to you by our sponsor, MailChimp. Hi there. My name is Daniel Doswell. I'm co-founder, along with my friend, Mignon Hemsley of Grounded, a DC-based direct-to-consumer virtual plant shop. We're on a mission to help the world disconnect and decompress with the help of plants in our spaces. When we launched a company on Earth Day of 2020 out of my mom's house, we received 500 orders in under 45 minutes. Seeing our idea for a business come to fruition was so rewarding, like planting a seed, nurturing it, and watching it grow into a tree. No pun intended. We keep the mission and vision of Grounded top of mind, even through some growing pains, but make sure that we are gentle with ourselves in the process to stay grounded. 
You can see what houseplants you can have at your door in two to three days at www.grounded-plants.com. Thanks, Daniel. Our sponsor, MailChimp, offers an all-in-one marketing platform built with growing businesses in mind. Visit MailChimp.com slash smart marketing to learn more on how to fuel your business, even if you're just starting out. And we are back. It can be hard to put into words what is lost when families are displaced by war or hunger or drought. Families lose their ability to support each other. Workers lose their ability to support themselves. Children lose their friends, their schools, their sense of safety. And young girls risk losing their childhood. Among Syrians living in refugee camps in Lebanon, 40% of girls under the age of 18 are married. In Turkey, that number is 45%. Families who fled to refugee camps often make the very difficult choice to find husbands for their daughters to try to protect them from violence or to stabilize their finances. But child marriage puts girls at risk of injury or death during childbirth and causes them to leave school, putting them at a lifelong disadvantage. In 2013, when Mazun al-Malehen's family fled war in Syria to a refugee camp in Jordan, she was shocked by the number of children who had left school. So at the age of 14, she began to campaign, trying to convince parents that rather than marry off their daughters, they should keep them in school. Her activism and her education has continued even as she's resettled in the United Kingdom and gone to university. She's a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador, working to make sure children have access to school in emergency situations. We wanted to talk to Mizun about what it's like to be displaced and what her hopes are for the global community of displaced people. Mizun, thank you so much for having this conversation. It's just a pleasure to meet you. Me too. It has been a great pleasure to meet you too. Do you mind uh, introducing yourself to our listeners? Yes, uh, for sure. So uh, my name is Muzun, and uh, I am uh, 23 years old. So you will be 24 very soon next month. I am from Syria. Uh, so uh, I had to flee my homeland in 2013. And I lived in refugee camps for three years in Jordan. And I'm currently uh, living and studying in the United Kingdom. Well, happy birthday in advance, first of all. Thank you so much. I hope that it's a day full of joy and that your year ahead is full of abundance. You already talked a little bit about um, having to flee Syria. Can you tell us about the day your family left? Uh, So basically, once the war started, we had really many, many challenges. Uh, Our lives changed upside down. Mm -hmm. For example, we really didn't have access to our basic needs and we lived in the war for two years. But the last days before fleeing, it becomes really dangerous to stay there. So the level of bombings and the level of fighting around us, it increased, which forced us basically to take this difficult decision and uh, to flee our uh, country and our town. Uh, So the only option was to go to Jordan because it was really close to my hometown Mm -hmm. called Dar'a, which is in southern Syria close to the border with Jordan. So uh, there was an option to go to the camp, uh, the Zahtari camp. So my family and also my uncle's family, basically, they both uh, sat together and talked about it. 
and they said the future is uh, unknown, mm-hmm. but uh, we have no choice. We want to flee for our children, for their safety, for their education, for their life. Uh, maybe we will stay just for a few days or for a month or so, uh, because no one expected the war will be extended like this yeah. for such a long time. Uh, so we thought it is just a short time. Uh, we will stay there and then we can come back to Syria. Mm. What do you remember? about the day that you left? So I remember it was a very sad day. It was like a dream because uh, when you living in a place, since you were a child, you have all your friends, your relatives, uh, your school, your neighbors, all the people you know, and suddenly uh, all these things uh, will disappear and uh, you flee to a place which is brand new. We don't know anything about the camp. It was such a new experience. Uh, And also we saw in the news how the situation is really difficult in the camp. Uh, So uh, we were afraid to flee uh, and also uh, sad because we left many people behind. I remember everyone was crying, Mm -hmm. but uh, I remember we woke up really early in the morning. We had to pack uh, just the things that we need them the most. Uh, So, of course, we couldn't really bring uh, everything or everything we need. We just had basically to take the things that we think it is the most uh, necessities and essentials for us. For me, I remember in that day, I just thought about what is the most important thing to me. And I uh, immediately thought about my school books Mm -hmm. because I was in grade nine and I was studying very, very hard for that year. It was uh, a national exams for grade nine in Syria. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was sad also to leave my school and all the efforts that I have made during that time. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, I just packed my school books, even though they were really heavy. But I thought they are what I need and what will give me hope actually in my journey. Mm. So you're in the ninth grade. You pack up your school books, you pack up your sadness, and you make that journey to Jordan with your family to a refugee camp that you've never seen before. You don't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. What was that first day in the camp like for you in Jordan? Do you remember what your first impression was? Yeah, so the first impression was getting really disappointed why we came. We Mm. started to blame ourselves. Uh, We were saying just we want to go back. Mm. You know, we don't know this place. Uh, Something uh, really weird to live in a tent, to have such a basic life, which was really challenging. And to start everything from nothing, like uh, to start very new life, which was super challenging. So the first impression, we decided to go back. So basically, Hmm. uh, we started to ask how we can go back to Syria. Even if it is worse, it is much better than staying in the camp. It is much better, this situation, no matter what is going uh, on in Syria. Even if we are going to die, we want to go back. But then actually, we saw some relatives who actually went to the camp before us. They assured us, they said it is difficult at the beginning. Of course, it is not a perfect life. It is not something we want, but we can uh, basically deal with this situation and just live in uh, this situation until we see what's going on in Syria. So, yeah, we suffered a lot at the beginning. But then day by day, uh, we started to know new friends, new people, new neighbors, uh, the school, which made me really hopeful. And no matter what challenges that were facing us, Uh, at least I had school and I found hope through that Mm -hmm. because I believed through my education, I can face the challenges, I can follow my dreams. 
and uh, I can do something which I feel uh, for myself is valuable and really give me the strength to be the person that I really want to be. So all these factors helped us to deal with the current yeah. situation. So you may do in the camp. You you did what you had to do. You stayed for a while and then you uh, went to the UK, which is where you are now. Uh, so basically, uh, all of this was uh, by chance. We were expecting to come back by somehow to, to our country. But in 2015, I was told by the organizations there uh, there is an opportunity if you want to resettle to uh, in a European country, if you want. So basically, I sat with the family and we discussed that. Uh, and we thought it will be the best option in the current situation because the situation in Syria is still very difficult. It is very bad. The things get worse. They don't get better. So no um, hope to go back to Syria in the short time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I was in my last year of education in the camp, which was the Jordanian curriculum. Uh, so it was like uh, t- uh, year 12, which is the last year of education in Jordan. And then we can go to university. So I thought anyways, maybe I will leave the camp to study if I got like a scholarship or so. Basically, we thought it is a good opportunity. And we agreed. And then the process started. And we have chosen the UK and came here. But I'm so thankful for this opportunity. And they feel now the UK is my second home. So I want to know a little bit more about your activism in the camp, right? Because Mm -hmm. everybody's not making that choice. That's an incredibly difficult choice. It's hard enough to survive in that situation. And yet you choose to take that time to engage in activism for the sake of everyone around you. Tell me a little bit about your activism while you were at the camp. Yes, this is really such an uh, important question because it was the beginning and something I'm so proud that I have done. Mm. Uh, So basically in a situation like the camp, we have two choices. One is to just give up or to choose to be hopeful and face the challenges. And uh, I didn't allow those uh, challenges and this situation to basically defeat me. So I have chosen to fight and to defeat the challenges, to be stronger than them and don't allow them to make me lose hope or to lose that uh, the belief in myself or to believe that I deserve to reach my rights because I didn't make the war and uh, I didn't choose to be a refugee. But I still have hopes and I still have dreams. I also still deserve to uh, reach uh, what I want. And also I have rights, in particular my education. So for me, I don't accept to lose my rights. And that's what I wanted for every child in the camp. I mean, I don't think anybody could blame you or anyone for for making the choice just to make it through and survive. And yet you made the choice to be an activist then. You've continued to do that work. You are now an advocate for other refugees as a UNICEF goodwill ambassador. Here's what's powerful about this. You're the youngest ambassador. You're also the first former person who's been a refugee to have this particular role. So I want to, I really want to tap into your expertise as someone who has just such a clearly global view. I think that it's easy sometimes for us, especially in the West, to get caught up only in what's happening in our community on our doorstep. Mm -hmm. Can you help our listeners understand the range of experiences that refugees can have? So basically, before maybe like I have become a refugee, I thought maybe to become a refugee, it is something could be shameful, something uh, people could label me like uh, somebody who's weak Mm -hmm. or unable to do something, Mm -hmm. somebody who just needs basic uh, 
things like food and shelter. I know these things are really fundamental and we need to provide people with like food and shelter. But uh, refugees have things beyond that. They have dreams, they have rights, they have expertise, they have also contributions that they can really offer to the world. The only difference is that their circumstances, Mm -hmm. like war. So uh, now maybe I think after uh, what's going on in Ukraine, people started to see this happening here, basically, Mm -hmm. which is something really sad. But I think when people really start to see it in different places, they realize we are forced to do so. Mm-hmm. It is not our choice. So people of Syria, people of Ukraine, uh, people of many countries, when they are forced and their lives at danger, they have no choice. And all of them, they really want to stay in their countries. But when uh, their lives at risk, they need to uh, migrate to another country or to cross borders. Right. Unfortunately, there are many misconceptions about what refugee is. And uh, unfortunately, most of them, they are really, really negative. But uh, I just want to assure people that refugees, we all need a better life. We need safety. We need peace. And we have good and bad people at the same time. So if just the media, for example, sometimes says refugees are making our life at risk or uh, they are stealing our jobs or our opportunities, I think this is just a propaganda and it is not based on facts and evidence. And at the end, we all are human beings and we have the same uh, feelings uh, and we have uh, many similarities. I know we have differences, but we definitely can learn from these differences. And uh, we still have many things in common because when we feel compassionate about each other and support each other, we can really uh, uh, move forward. But once we uh, discriminate each other and uh, we become racist towards some groups of people, Mm -hmm. I think we go back. And uh, the great thing about differences is to learn from them, not to uh, just uh, become enemies or to fight each other or just to have hate on each other. The points that you're making are so salient in part because it's the humanity of it all that matters. It's one thing to think about the contributions and the expertise that people come with. But even without all of that, displaced people are human and it could happen to any of us, right? Yes, definitely. And so the kind of peace that all of us deserve in in that moment is what you seek. Yes, at the end, we all could be uh, in the same situation. So Syria, for example, before 2011, It was uh, such a peaceful country. We had peace, we had safety. So the rise of refugees who are coming from Syria becomes clear just after the war. Before the war, there was no Syrian who really lived to seek refuge in any neighboring country. But it is just the war, the factor of war, which drives people like me and like millions uh, to flee their homelands. You know, I think some people might get the impression that if someone is leaving a place where there is war or where there is hunger, whatever the circumstances are that have Mm -hmm. driven someone to migrate, to move, Mm -hmm. that the camp that's run maybe by a relief agency or an NGO, that that life is automatically going to be better and safer than what people are fleeing. Mm -hmm. And sadly, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Can you talk about some of the, the stressors that come with being a displaced person and that you might experience in a camp setting? I think in, if it is in a camp or anywhere, when somebody actually uh, flees their uh, country of origin, they will be in a vulnerable situation, mm-hmm. especially children and women. 
So this is the case. And the CAMS is not such a perfect environment all the time. Not all CAMS are safe. Most of the CAMS also uh, people uh, suffer and they have insecurity. But it is less threatening. It is less violent than the ones that you are fleeing. And we have, of course, to make sure uh, women and the children who most likely will be vulnerable in these situations to make sure uh, they are safe. But I still feel it is uh, better than the direct risk on uh, people's lives. Right. One of the uh, insecurities that you uh, have really advocated around in the refugee camp setting has been around education. Can you talk a little bit about what you were seeing in the refugee camp that made you want to take action on this particular issue? The number of uh, children who dropped out from a school, it was so huge. Mm. So many of them, they thought we are just living here for a short time, no need to go to school. Even though I was telling people, basically, we don't know when we will come back. And until now, we didn't come back to Syria. Like if we imagine a child who fled Syria in 2013, who was born there, now they must be in secondary education or maybe in last years of a primary education. So losing like 10 years, 11 years of education, mm. this is a disaster. So as long as we have an opportunity, we have to use it because we really don't know what is ahead. Yeah. So we must uh, get education, learn as much as we can. So at least we can do something for our country in the future. So when I saw the huge numbers of children who don't go to school, this made me really sad. And I realized I need to do actions. I need to do something. I need to use my voice. Some folks have called Syrian youth a lost generation mm -hmm. because this access to education that you're talking about has been so completely disrupted by war and by displacement. And, you know, when we talk about that with you, it's it's not esoteric, right? These are people that you know. These are your former classmates. Yes. These are people sure. that you know, that you knew and loved before the war broke out. How can the international community really show up in solidarity and support for people of your generation? And what really needs to happen in the future when crises like these happen to prevent that kind of loss from occurring? So I believe the biggest thing that we could do to uh, really solve the root causes, basically, of what's going on. Like, for example, in Syria, the world has been 11 years, which maybe it seems for us just numbers, mm. but it is many years of suffering, many years of uh, children cannot go to school, disruption of education. Many families in Syria now live uh, under the poverty line. So it is easy to destroy a country, uh, but it is so, so difficult to build it. Mm. Syria uh, was destroyed by 11 years, but I'm sure we need hundreds of years to, uh, to rebuild what it has been destroyed. So I think once a conflict happens, we need to work together in order to uh, stop it because uh, war is the worst thing I believe it could happen uh, for us uh, to any human being. Yeah. Like we've kept saying, this is personal for you. You've lived all of this. And I have to imagine that these images and stories that are coming out of Ukraine and the 6.5 million people that have been displaced by this particular war they have to be affecting you. Sure. This is, these aren't just numbers for you. These aren't just faceless people. H how are you personally doing with all of it? 
to be honest, I was super shocked when first the war happened in Ukraine, like when I was shocked when the war happened in Syria, mm. because it was something we didn't expect. It started as a revolution and then transformed into a war and conflict. Mm. Now, unfortunately, what breaks my heart is people just know war about Syria. They know it is a country which has no safety, country which is just has war. Even though Syria has a great history, has a talented people, it had good education, it had beautiful cities, it has really a bright side. So it's sad to see another war happening, more children become vulnerable and in need, more children have been displaced and the refugees. And as a goodwill ambassador to UNICEF, I must talk about these things and highlight them and keep pushing politicians to save lives and to stop war and to make peace because it is between their hands. But sometimes I uh, decided sometimes not to watch because I felt mm. lately this has started to really affect me. Yeah. But sometimes, unfortunately, I feel I only have my voice, but there are many who have power and mm. have uh, all the um, tools to stop wars and they must do so. Of course, as an activist or as a person who had a personal experience, I can only relate to that and feel sad and uh, react with what's going on. And when the war happens, we see uh, who pays the price, basically the innocent people, children and women, and who really have nothing to do with war. Yeah. Dealing with the emotions of watching people be harmed and displaced and terrorized in ways that you can unfortunately really relate to. You're also watching the world, I would say, respond to the crisis in Ukraine very differently than we have responded to crises in other parts of the world, in Syria, Mm -hmm. across the global south, Mm -hmm. where Black and brown people are concerned. And to be very clear, the aid and humanitarian efforts around displaced people from Ukraine are correct. They are righteous. They are justified. But we know that there's a pretty stark contrast between that and what we've seen um, in terms of the world response to what's happened in Africa and and Middle Eastern countries with their refugees and Mm -hmm. and migrants. Um, What are some of the differences that you have observed? So I believe uh, this is such a great question and I think recently uh, started to make me think why sometimes we uh, become biased. Mm. For me personally, I believe if I am a just person, if I am uh, a person who believes in justice and a person who really wants to help uh, people in need, I must forget anything else. I must Mm. forget uh, the nationalities, races, color of skin, religions, and so on. If I am a person who know what's going on in Syria is wrong, when innocent people are dying, I must believe so in Ukraine as well. I saw media, unfortunately, many people say these are not Syrians, which is really big words, which affect us emotionally in a bad way. Because Syria, I feel in recent history, no country suffered like Syria. Mm -hmm. So basically, if a country wants to welcome refugees from Ukraine, this means they must welcome refugees from Syria and from anywhere from the world. If they don't want, then they don't welcome anyone. That's right. You know, you've continually spoken out about the racism and discrimination that you have experienced and observed um, happening with with specific groups of of migrants and refugees. I know that you recently posted about this on, on Instagram and you talked about how 
how that kind of discrimination really has to stop, the, the Ukrainian crisis and Ukrainian refugees are just one part of a much larger global community of displaced people. I'm curious to know from you what you would like to see taken from the response to Ukrainian refugees and applied to all displaced people. The countries which suffer for years also need attention, need people to speak out for them and in a positive way, not in a negative way. And this shows when Syrians actually have become refugees in many countries in the world, the positive impact they made. They have become successful in terms of education, in terms of businesses, but uh, we need to read history before labeling this as good or bad, Mm -hmm. especially saying that people who come from the Middle East We don't know their background. They are so dangerous. Even there is no evidence and link, for example, many terrorist attacks that happen, no one of them is a Syrian. So there is no link. We try to refer to those people as dangerous. Uh, They are not educated in order to make people hate each other. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there are some people who believe that. That's right. And that propaganda is... Sadly, very effective. Yes, unfortunately. Living in America, I am quick to remind people that all of the data shows us that the greatest terroristic threat in America are domestically born and raised white men, right? And so this propaganda, this rhetoric about it being folks from Central America or South America or the Middle East or Africa, it literally is a lie, right? And this is part of what we get when we have folks that, to your point, are not educated on the facts, you've continued to emphasize education in this conversation, but really throughout your whole life. Muzun, I cannot get over the fact that you are just 23. I was not doing this much <laughs> when I was 23. I'm not doing this much, uh, and I'm 37. No, you are doing amazing. Thank you. <laughs> you've lived through just so much, and you've you've managed to give so much to other people through your activism at the camp, through the way that you've supported your family, through your work at UNICEF. Before I let you go, what do you hope your life looks like at 33, 34? And and what do you hope the world looks like then? So on the personal level, I really don't know. Mm. Through my experience, basically, I learned to work hard, to do as much as I can and to be hopeful, like to just look in a positive way. Of Mm. course, uh, I hope we see a better world free from war, uh, free from discrimination and also suffering. Mm -hmm. And I hope... One day we can see all people can at least have access to their basic rights, including safety and peace, education, and so on. I hope that can happen. And in order to do so, we need to work now. Because in 10 years' time, if we are still supporting wars and making wars, then I don't know how can we make this world a brighter one. So we'll see. Well, I'm very sure that what we will see will be not only great things from you, but I agree with you and I have the same hope. I I fully believe that justice will reign supreme in the end. And so I appreciate all that you are doing to make that happen for everyone around the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for the great opportunity. Mazun Al-Malehen is UNICEF's youngest goodwill ambassador. Among the many, many things 
I'm walking away from this conversation with Mizun with is deep gratitude for her precise clarity that it is easy to destroy, but difficult to rebuild. I mean, my God, that's that's it. That's everything. Governments drop bombs and fly drones and drive tanks with little regard for the human cost, measured in lives and dreams and futures. In an instant, it can all be gone. Meanwhile, the recovery will take generations. For far too long, the narrative has been that underdeveloped nations, which is really just a comfortable euphemism for some other racist words, that they are the only places where this happens. The truth is that unprovoked or unexpected invasions like the one in Ukraine, genocidal behavior in Tigray, even severe climate and infrastructure disasters like Hurricane Katrina can cause crises of displacement and severe harm. So for Ukraine, Syria, for Tigray, for Honduras, for Palestine, for Haiti, for every person forced to flee for their safety and security, no matter the reason, showing up is not just the least we can do. It is the most human thing we can do. At the very least, show the kind of care that you hope is shown to you one day, because one day, each of us may need it. That's it for today, but never for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of the Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Ward. Our associate producers are Alexis Moore and Murray Alexa Cavanaugh. Thanks also to Treasure Brooks, Hannes Brown, and Anna Aberstein. Our executive producers at the Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media and our fantastic team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us, y'all, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or most places you check out your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being. Thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free. <laughs>